Welcome to the fifth episode of the Cornell Policy Review podcast. My name is Renisa Dityavarman, and I'm an associate editor of the review. Our podcast explores a variety of issues with figures from around the world. In this episode, I got a chance to sit down with Mr. Christopher Painter, who was the U.S. State Department's lead cyber diplomat for the past six years. Mr. Painter was appointed as the department's coordinator for cyber issues by Secretary Clinton in 2011 and was the leader in diplomatic efforts on cyber issues, representing the United States in multilateral and bilateral meetings across the world. He served in the White House as Senior Director for Cybersecurity Policy in the National Security Council. All of this was preceded by 19 years at the Department of Justice under Presidents George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and George H. W. Bush. Among other credentials, Christopher holds a JD from Stanford Law School and received his bachelor's degree at Cornell University. So Christopher, thanks so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. Um, welcome back to Cornell. Thanks. Great to be back. So let's just jump right in. And I wanted to begin with your role specifically in shaping cybersecurity field at the national and international levels. Where do you think cybersecurity was as a field of study when you first began? Where do you think it is now? And where do you think you fit into those changes? So, I mean, when I first began doing anything related to cyber, it was about 27 years ago, so it was a long time. And I'd say back then it was more a curiosity than anything else. I was doing cybercrime cases, some of the first big cybercrime cases in the 90s. Uh, and then I think people understood cybercrime to some extent. They were a little worried about uh, computer intrusions and hacking, but it really wasn't uh, an elevated issue. It still was a curiosity. Um, Obviously, you know, in many years since then, it's become much more of a front page issue in terms of all the different threats we're facing. Uh, but we still really approached it more from a law enforcement perspective and to some extent a network security perspective, which are two important perspectives to be sure. But we really weren't addressing as much as we should in a policy perspective. And when I uh, first went to the White House, uh, we, we started looking at it, and it really started at the end of the last administration too, before that, uh, as a major policy issue that wasn't just a technical issue, but really a core issue of our national security, economic security, um, human rights, and then ultimately foreign policy, too. When I went to the State Department, we were the first office anywhere in the world uh, who had an office in the foreign ministry that was dedicated to the full sweep of cyber issues. Cybersecurity, part of it, but also human rights online, freedom of expression, um, preventing cyber warfare, fighting cyber crime, internet governance, that whole group. Uh, and now there are about 26 other countries around the world that have similar offices. So, so the conversation, I think, has matured quite a bit that people now view this as both the important technical issue uh, and the threats we're facing technically, but also see some of the policy threats and challenges and opportunities. Uh, and I think it's matured in terms of the worldwide view of this and, and how countries really around the world are viewing this as, uh, as a major policy imperative. I'm glad you bring that up because I think the convention is when people think cyber, they think of someone in a dark room in a hoodie typing very quickly. But um, can you just describe what you think, or, slowly, or very slowly, like depend <laughs> <laughs> depending on what they're trying to achieve? But yeah. what do you think? What does it look like? What do cyber issues look like nowadays? So I think I think we're faced by uh, a range of threats, and those threats are posed by a number of actors. There are state actors, uh, very dedicated, sophisticated state actors. There are criminal groups, transnational criminal groups. There are uh, lone gunmen, uh, criminals or hackers, they call them. There's the specter of possibly terrorists uh, who certainly use the internet but haven't really uh, launched attacks. But there's also the policy threats, where, where countries have a very different future of the internet, who want to, uh, there are some countries, more repressive regimes, 
we want to draw sovereign boundaries around the internet and want to essentially balkanize it. And so there are challenges there too, and there's certainly human rights challenges as well, uh, and how the internet's governed, whether it's by countries or the system we have now, which is countries uh, together with the private industry, academia, uh, civil society, which has worked so well. So there's, there's really a number of threats that are out there that we have to face uh, and challenges we have to face. And so the important part, I think, for us is to figure out what those challenges are, have appropriate responses, both domestic and international responses to those, uh, and build the kind of networks and alliances that help us handle these threats while at the same time realizing the obvious tremendous opportunities around cyberspace. Right. And of the threats that you mentioned, the state actors, criminal groups, the, the lone government, like you mentioned, what do you think is the hardest to manage? It's sort of a, it's a range across all the different actors. Each of them pose their own different challenges. Certainly, uh, nation states pose real challenges because in terms of the policy threats, in terms of trying to balkanize or control the internet, uh, that's, that's a challenge that really has to be taken very seriously. It's outside the technical realm. Uh, but, you know, we've seen a number of incidents and, you know, for instance, the Russian interference with our election recently, which is something, quite frankly, we didn't foresee. We were worried about attacks on critical infrastructure, we were worried, which we still worry about. Uh, we were worried about massive thefts of intellectual property that we see states engaging in. We worry about possibly escalatory conduct when states, uh, you know, launch, people like to talk about cyber warfare a lot. It really hasn't happened yet, but we're worried about that kind of activity. And we've been taking actions to try to work against that, make sure that we're building um, alliances of like-minded countries to respond to threats and laying uh, a framework of international law, norms, and confidence-building measures to deal with a long-term environment. Uh, but the new threats that we've seen, which are not exclusively cyber threats, you know, interference with democratic process is not just a cyber threat, it's a cyber threat, uh, it's a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a threat that we've seen long before cyberspace existed, and being able to really resist those, uh, harden our targets, but also build alliances to make sure that doesn't happen in the future. I'm glad you brought up the elephant in the room, of course, um, which is pretty much everything surrounding the Russian interference in the 2016 presidential elections. I guess my question for you is that you mentioned that cyber warfare really hasn't happened yet. But in October, Politico had a piece on Russian meddling, quoting the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, and in which she called the interference in the U.S. elections by another nation as warfare. And in specific reference to Russia, she said, quote, you can look at France, you can look at other countries, they, being Russia, are doing this everywhere, this is their new weapon of choice, and we have to make sure we get in front of it, end quote. Can you react to that statement? Look, I, I think it's information warfare. I, I, you know, I think when you say, you know, it's depending on how you use the term, cyber warfare might imply that there is a armed conflict where you have certain responses, but it clearly is an incredibly serious uh, issue, and I don't think it's new. I, and this predated the internet, this kind of influence operation, this information warfare is not new, this trying to destabilize uh, democratic regimes is not new. What's new is using the tools of cyberspace both to get the information and to weaponize that information. And that is incredibly serious. And yes, we've seen this in Europe. You know, we saw this uh, happen in France and, and uh, 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 the Netherlands and other, in Germany and other places. This, uh, this is, and certainly a lot of the Eastern and Central European countries have seen this for some time. Uh, so the solution to that, though, is not always cyber. I mean, the cyber people have to play in this, but it's also getting the other people who deal with messaging and counter-messaging and dealing with these influence operations to work together. So what do you, 
think the role of diplomacy versus, you know, traditional law enforcement agencies versus these specific cyber agencies should, what, what, what's the relationship? So they all have to work together. So as I look at the different threats out there, uh, obviously when we're facing criminal threats, law enforcement has a primary role to go after those criminal threats to actually show there are consequences for criminal actions and, and go after them. Uh, for, uh, but we have a number of tools, and then for the technical community, the CERT community, the, like our Department of Homeland Security, they need to build bridges and cooperate with countries around the world to make sure we mitigate the threats. Uh, and our Defense Department has a role too because they have tools and capabilities. And, and one of the things I think we have to recognize is you don't respond to a cyber event, whether it's an intrusion or attack, uh, necessarily using cyber means. You use all the ranges of national power. This could be diplomatic, it could be trade and sanctions, they could be um, uh, law enforcement, uh, they could be using cyber tools. In the most extreme circumstances, when you have loss of life and something like that, where it literally is a physical attack, you can even use kinetic tools. So you have to look at all the tools you have. And I'd say that the one thing that, or one of the things we need to do a better job of is deterring uh, bad actors in cyberspace. And, and that requires you to have uh, both uh, consequences, uh, and they have to be timely and credible consequences. And that's not just the U.S. doing it, it's the U.S. working in concert with other countries. And I think. There's been some good work there, but we need to do more. Um, so that's part of it. Um, the kind of unique diplomacy role in this is twofold. Uh, one is how we cooperate against these threats by getting other countries to work with us. So a good example is years ago there was a sustained what they call denial of service attack against our financial institutions. Um, now this wasn't the end of the world. It didn't change the data, but it was knocking their websites offline. And later on it was uh, found out to be Iran, they were indicted for some of this activity, Iranian actors. Um, so we looked at all the tools we had, and we had a number of tools we could use, law enforcement tools, network security tools, and cooperation. But we used diplomatic demarches, which sounds like a nasty thing, but it's actually a positive thing, where we asked like 20 other countries, where are these botnets? This is a, it's called a botnet. There are compromised computers, hundreds, tens of thousands of them, located all over the world. These are innocent computers, but the bad guys have compromised them and used them to launch an attack against websites and other places. Uh, so what we did is we went to these 25 countries where they were concentrated and said, can you help us? Can you use whatever tools you have to help us? And those countries helped, and we committed to helping them. So that's, that's one example. Another example is in the long-term aspect. What, how are we trying to make it a more stable cyber environment over time? And for that, we've been really championing this idea of a cyber stability framework, which is comprised of international law applying in cyberspace, just like it is in the physical world. It seems like that's a no-brainer, but for a lot of countries, that was a big leap. Mm -hmm. uh, so that you know, the same laws that deal with things like conflict in the real world apply to cyber. Now, how they apply, we're still working on that, but that's an important foundation. And then what are the rules of the road of conduct that fall below those high cyber war thresholds that we want to see. And we've been, we've been working with other countries to say things like you shouldn't attack the critical infrastructure of another country, absent wartime. You shouldn't um, attack the certs or the, you know, the computer emergency response teams, They're like the ambulances on the internet. You shouldn't attack them. Mm -hmm. uh, you shouldn't, uh, there should be an expectation that if you see malicious code coming from your country and another country asks you that you'll take some steps to mitigate it. And then the agreement we reached to the Chinese a couple of years ago that you should not steal the intellectual property and trade secrets in another country to benefit your commercial sector. And then the third element is um, confidence building. 
measures, transparency measures, points of contact, ways to, dis to make sure you don't have inadvertent escalation. So we've been working pretty hard on getting that framework accepted around the world, and that's a predicate to better deterrence and taking action. So these agreements with countries, I, I think of the how the Trump administration just quietly reaffirmed the um, 2015 hacking accord with China, correct? Like you mentioned, both countries pledged not to steal trade secrets from each other for the benefit of domestic companies. And, um, the benefit of their commercial side. And Chinese back cyber theft of American trade secrets has dropped roughly 90% since uh, the 2015 accord. And so what does that tell us about future agreements like this? And yeah. do you see it expanding further than bilateral agreements? Or do you think that's where the well, answer is lie? I think even in that case, it expanded quite far beyond that. So really, for after years of sustained pressure, I mean, this is a big issue uh, between the U.S. and China, where there was a very strong concern about the wholesale theft of intellectual property and trade secrets using cyber means. And it was seen as not just a national security issue, but an economic issue. And it was raised by President Obama at a very high level with the Chinese in a way that never happened before. And it was even said that, look, we're willing to take some friction in the overall relationship because this is so important. And, you know, after, you know, literally years of, you know, a couple of years of, of trying to um, get movement on that. Just before President Xi came to Washington, we sat down and negotiated for literally all night <laughs> and came up with this agreement that I think was an important agreement because before that there wasn't a recognition there was any difference between that kind of commercial espionage, which we don't do and, and uh, other countries don't do, and the kind of intelligence gathering every country does. Uh, and, and I think it's important to make that distinction to say what really should be off limits to come up with some of those rules. Now, after that bilateral agreement, there was agreement in the G20. Um, so that immediately makes it more a multilateral agreement. And then after that, uh, the UK reached a bilateral agreement with the Chinese, the Germans reached a bilateral agreement with the Chinese, the Australians just recently, just a few months ago, also reached a bilateral agreement. So it's become more of a global norm that this is not acceptable behavior. Uh, and so I think that's important. That's one way to go. Um, you know, I, I would hesitate to try to do any kind of treaty instrument and say, okay, we need to put these rules of the road that we're trying to develop into some kind of treaty. I don't think we're even close to that yet. I think we really need to get more people to understand what these norms are and to get them to accept them and to figure out how these work in practice. Uh, but I think bilateral is a way to advance the multilateral acceptance. They're not mutually exclusive. That makes sense. And so I guess this, this relates to a broader question of the role of cyber in terms of influencing foreign relations in general. Yeah. Um, have you found that cyber diplomacy has created more friction among countries or ha has cooperation led to some sort of diminishing of such friction? What's yeah, your experience with that? I think it actually, the, the, the cyber diplomacy aspect, I mean, there are aspects of cyberspace that have caused more friction, where countries have different value systems where some want to control information, whether you use the term information security by cybersecurity, because they're really worried about what mm -hmm. they think is the destabilizing nature of information that's very foreign uh, from the U.S. and, and European view. Um, and, and certainly the concern about um, military actions in cyberspace, criminal actions in cyberspace, there's been a lot of, I think, concern caused by that. Diplomacy has helped, I'd say, in, in big ways. So the one thing I'd say that I said in the beginning is thinking of this as not just a technical issue, but a core issue of national security uh, and, and foreign policy means you don't have to be a technical expert 
to understand the implications. Just like you don't need to be a technical expert to understand the implications of a lot of other complicated issues. And so it makes it more of a mainstream issue. And that means countries are talking about it. So, you know, it used to be that you'd go and talk to a senior cabinet person or in another country you'd talk to a minister and they would, you know, their eyes would roll up in the back of their heads and they just wouldn't <laughs> want to deal with this. But now they understand it's a core security issue. And so that means it's raised in priority in all the kind of conversations we've had with other countries, both in multilateral groups and regional groups, but also bilaterally. I ran a number of what we called all of government dialogues with other countries. So uh, that would be, you know, our State Department, their foreign ministry, but also the Defense Department, the Commerce Department, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, the whole range of agencies on both sides. And so you had a really good discussion and better understanding between those countries. We did that with Japan and uh, South Korea and Germany and France and Brazil and India and China even. So, I mean, we've done a number of those. And I think that builds better understanding and a better uh, move to try to bring some stability to this environment. And Not perfect yet, but there's a, lot, there's a lot more work to be done. But I think that's actually helped quite a bit. And that, that actually relates to one of my questions in terms of the continuity of this general trend that it's being prioritized. Um, you've obviously worked for several administrations, and I'm wondering, has there been any change in that prioritization from administration to administration, either specifically in the U.S., or even working with other countries? Has, does a change in administration influence that at all? You know, generally, no. This has generally been a bipartisan issue, or a nonpartisan issue, depending on how you look at it, mm -hmm. where both, there might be slight differences between each party, but they both have prioritized this. What I've seen in the past is that this has become an important issue for a short time. You know, the U.S. had a, uh, a cybersecurity strategy um, in 2003, and it became shelfware, I'd say, by 2004 or five, because people weren't ready for it yet. I mean, it was sort of a sinusoidal curve where it was like really important and then it wasn't as important anymore. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen anymore. I think everyone now recognizes that we're so dependent on these technologies. There's so many you know, potential threats out there. Uh, and there's so many crossovers and implications to deal with other parts of, uh, of both policy and foreign policy. They mentioned human rights and governance and other issues that this is not in economics. This is not something you can ignore anymore. Um, so I think it's going to remain an increasing priority uh, if for no other reason the threats aren't going away. Uh, and I think that that will have to be. You know, and I think um, how that expresses itself in different countries, we'll see. It's something that I think more and more countries, as I said, are, are recognizing or waking up to this. They don't necessarily know what to do about it, mm -hmm. but they recognize it's a, a problem. More and more countries are doing national strategies for cyber, uh, which is good because it helps organize and, and raise the level of uh, importance in their country. So I think that's important. Okay. And so, so between administrations, the general trend is that it's rising in importance. Um, how's about between agencies? Yeah. Well, one of the things, one of the big transformations I mentioned, one transformation I saw is this transfer of a technical to a policy issue. The other, I'd say, is that. You know, the U.S. government, not surprisingly, we're not the only government that's like this, had silos of excellence. You had people discussing different issues in cyberspace and different agency silos. Even within the same agency, there might be several different silos. You had the economic community use an entirely different language than the security community. That still happens to an extent. Mm -hmm. um, what I, one of the big advances I've seen is by, you know, we did our international strategy in 2011. We brought uh, about 16 agencies into a room. And it was like creative cacophony. It was like everyone had different ways of talking. They had different priorities. 
when about a year and a half or right in that strategy, those agencies came together and saw the common purpose. And the fact is that we met, you know, frequently. Uh, I held meetings once a month. The White House held meetings like almost every week or more than sometimes more than uh, weekly on different issues. And that breeds, I think, more commonality of purpose. You might still have disagreements between agencies, but at least there is a better understanding. And I think that's something we've been trying to do around the world, too, uh, to, to get that push going. Now, you know, I think there will always be blips along the way. As you have new people come in, you know, you have to make sure that this is an important priority and they understand it and they continue that. And that's always a challenge. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that there are some really uh, good people in the government right now, in the U.S. government. I, I think we need to continue to strengthen this issue. Uh, there was an executive order that talked about a number of deliverables and strategies. Uh, those strategies have to be implemented and carried out. Uh, you know, I think for my old department, the State Department, they need to elevate this issue and not subjugate this issue as an important international priority. Mm -hmm. um, those are all things that are left to be seen. I guess my question, frankly, is there seems to be an apparent disagreement between, for example, what Ambassador Haley is talking about and what we're hearing from the White House. Mm -hmm. Have you experienced that ever before? And what do you think are solutions in terms of either getting like a unified voice on cyber issues, especially on the Russian interference? I, th I think, you know, I, I completely agree with you. I think it's, um, you know, I mentioned there's a very talented people in the White House, uh, the cyber coordinator in the White House, Rob Joyce, who came from the NSA, for instance, Tom Bossert, who was the Assistant the President for Counterterrorism and Homeland Security, but also the cyber, I think, is a, is a good person. There's a lot of good person, people throughout the government that do, uh, if she gets confirmed, DHS Secretary. Uh, uh, Kirsten has a, uh, Nielsen has a long history in dealing with cyber when she was there. So that's all good, right? Um, but it is, you know, quite frankly, it is of concern uh, if the President says that this didn't happen. You, you can't um, and I know he walked back those comments recently, but it, you, you, you can't actually prevent something from happening again if you don't acknowledge it happened the first time, you know, and you have to understand the threats out there and understand that people don't necessarily have our best interests at heart. And so, uh, you know, again, the election interference is a, is a hybrid type of risk. It's not just a cyber risk, right. uh, but there's certainly a cyber component and we, we cannot afford to be complacent. We have to make sure that doesn't happen again to us. Okay. And what do you envision as what do you envision as the main threats in the coming years? Either so, that, and that can be either regionally or like just issue area wise. Yeah, I think I think that's always hard to predict because, um, for instance, we didn't see the Russian election interference right. uh, coming. Uh, that wasn't on our radar. Now, but it might have been on someone's radar who was more used to influence issues rather than cyber issues. But I think those hybrid threats we have to be careful that they don't surprise us. We have to make sure we have you know, connectivity throughout the different experts to look at these things. Um, I do worry, although we haven't seen it, about the kind of infrastructure attacks we've been worried about all along. Um, I think there's lots of reasons we haven't seen it yet, but I'm more worried about rogue actors doing that rather than more, you know, nation states that have reasons not to do it when we have economic and other ties to them. Um, and there's a lot of new technologies we're becoming dependent on, like the Internet of Things, for instance, and, and what that will mean in terms of the attack surface that, that yields. One of the things I'm most worried about um, is, you know, we've been talking a lot about intrusions, we've been talking a lot about these kind of attacks that render things unavailable. Uh, I'm really worried about the integrity of information. So, 
for instance, if someone hacks into the stock exchange and corrupts the data in a way that you can't rely on the transactions, that is catastrophic. Even though it doesn't cause loss of life, that's catastrophic. Or to give you another example, my um, uh, friend and, uh, and uh, compatriot uh, Thomas Silvis, who is the former president of Estonia, uses this example. He said, you know, it's, it's one thing when someone tries to do one of these denial of service attacks like that happened in Estonia in 27, t 2007 that knocks something offline so I can't access it. It's another thing if they go into my medical records and change my blood type and so when I get a transfusion, I die. Wow. Those, those kind of things, I think, are possible and serious. You know, we've seen new clever things like ransomware and, and you know, we have to be able to combat those threats as well. And, you know, and I am worried about the instability in cyberspace. I think as countries around the world, and almost every country is, develop cyber tools, uh, that if we don't make progress in creating a framework around this and some better understanding among countries, that risks escalation, and, and we can't afford that either. Wow. But you mentioned that countries are really kind of upping their game when it comes to cyber issues. Um, can you talk about specifically um, what you were doing in Australia this summer, for example, and yeah. um, kind of how that may be a template in terms of helping other countries prepare their own systems? I think Australia is a really good example of a country uh, that has done significant amounts more recently. They appointed, uh, they released their cybersecurity strategy uh, about a year ago, I guess, um, which is a real landmark for them. And they've already been doing a lot of good things, but really crystallized that. Uh, they appointed someone in the Prime Minister's office, uh, Alistair McGinn, who is the sort of cyber coordinator for them to kind of bring all these things together. They recently created a cybersecurity center as well that works on the technical issues uh, uh, and the response issues. I think that was just about a couple months ago now. Um, and they appointed a counterpart to me in their foreign ministry, an ambassador, uh, uh, Toby Feakin, who does these issues as well. And so, you know, I think Australia, for instance, uh, is both playing internationally, but they also have an important role to play regionally because they have a lot of regional partners there. So that's, that's one good example. And I think that can be used as a template. Another good one is Singapore. Uh, Singapore uh, also releases its national strategy recently. And Singapore has been very interesting because they want to play and have played a key role with the ASEAN countries uh, in the region. And so they dedicated to doing a lot more capacity building with those countries to talk about these policy issues, these norms issues and others. Uh, so they've been a regional leader and I think that's been important. Um, and of course, you know, other countries have been looking at this for a while. The UK has gone through, I think, four different cyber strategies now and they refine it each time. Um, uh, you know, uh, India and the U.S. signed a uh, very comprehensive uh, cyber agreement across a whole bunch of different issues about a year and a half ago. It was the first one ever signed like that between anyone. Uh, smaller countries like Israel and um, Estonia are great examples of what can be done in the smaller countries. So I think there are lots of examples out there. Okay. Uh, Japan's been doing a lot more recently as well, especially in preparation for the Olympics that are coming up. Hmm. Um, so a lot of examples. Uh, it's not easy to do. I mean, you know, first of all, just the organizational aspects are not easy because it's not, there's no one agency that does this. You have to really cross, cut across a, a number of them. Uh, and it requires resources and attention. Um, and, and I think, you know, we're seeing that, uh, but it's still, you know, especially what I, I am concerned about is a lot of developing world countries who have lots of issues. Um, mm -hmm. They're beginning to pay attention to this and we have to help them get there. Well, 
Chris, I guess my last question is for you, just looking forward, what, what is your advice for young people or policymakers who are either discouraged from entering government work right now or just interested in, you know, other things? What would you say to young people trying to enter the government at this day and age and um, specifically people who are interested in cyber issues? You know, I think we are still in the beginning of this conversation about what the, you know, what a lot of the policies are, the international policies around this area. And I think this is a, a real opportunity for new people to come in and form this conversation. So, so for instance, one of the things I didn't go into a lot of detail uh, on is we're thinking about how we can better deter conduct in cyberspace, how we can work with other countries, how we can engage that. Um, there's, there's lots of different opportunities as governments are thinking about this. I'd say, the other thing I'd say is there's no, there's no, you know, well-worn path of how you do these things. So it's fine to do other things first. It's fine to get a background. I was a recovering lawyer. I said I was a lawyer, uh, you know, I was in a law firm before I went um, to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and then I, I, right. I moved in this area. It's actually good to have a background and, and, and explore different things. And so I don't think it's either or. It's not binary. You have to choose to go into this immediately or not. But I do think it's a really exciting area because it is new. You know, a lot of areas, you, you know, I used to say this for young diplomats when I was, uh, uh, we had a core of diplomats in each of our embassies who were dedicated to this issue. And I said, unlike a lot of other issues where you're just simply delivering talking points, you contributed to the policy here. You have a chance to shape the policy. This is so new still that there's a real opportunity to shape the policies and the direction we're going. And we're looking for new ideas and new thoughts. There's a lot of things that are just not settled. So I, I just think this is a great area. It's a lot of opportunity. Uh, it's fun. I've, I've enjoyed it. Uh, and it's something that's not going to go away. And could you possibly speak to being able to work under different kinds of administrations? Yeah, look, I, I think as a practical matter, as I said earlier, this has been not a partisan issue. Uh, and and that's been true, you know, I, I've testified before Congress, I've been serving in different administrations over time. Um, you know, I know people are concerned about that and they're concerned about leadership and how that, that works. But I hope that this continues to be an area that's not partisan. I hope this is an area where it's opportunities for everyone, really. That this is, this is a fight that shouldn't be a partisan fight. This is a fight that we should be able to join together on. I understand their issues, and I, but, I, but I think um, you know, everyone has to make that calculus for themselves. But you know, I found working through several different administrations that you know, that wasn't a concern. This wasn't a politicized issue. And even though it's become so a bit recently, uh, mostly on the Russia issue, not yeah. really on the other issues, I think for the bulk of the issues, it will remain a core issue of national security and should be looked at that way. Thank you so much, Chris. This was extremely illuminating for me and I'm sure our listeners. And thank you again for talking with Happy us. Happy to do it. So thanks.